Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Human Rights Channel at the New Books Network podcast. My name is Yakir Englander, the host of this episode. In the past week, the entire world has been focusing on the murderous attack by the Hamas organization against the state of Israel and Israel's response to these actions. Hamas has murdered 1,300 civilians and soldiers, including children, the elderly, and women. Furthermore, the methods used by Hamas in their killings have displayed the unprecedented level of cruelty, including acts of desecration of the living and the dead, sexual violence, and harming children. Additionally, they have abducted 199 civilians and soldiers. Hamas proudly boasted about these actions including videos on their Telegram channel, exposing the world to their brutality. Israel's response was swift with the Israeli Defense Forces IDF launching airstrikes of an intensity not seen before, and there is also the possibility of a ground intrusion into Gaza. The IDF takes pride in being a moral army, and to ensure this, Several philosophers and theologians have written the IDF's ethical code, which every soldier and officer carries in their pocket. Due to the, due to the criticism and the intense debate surrounding the conduct of the moral army, I have invited Professor Noam Zohar, who was part of the advisory committee for writing the code, especially focusing on the purity of arms section, together we will embrace on a journey to discuss questions of ethics and warfare in the Israeli military context. So, Professor Zohar, thank you so much for being with us in the New in the New Books Network. My pleasure. Hello. So, we are in very hard days. Um, as the listeners are going to listen to that, um, there is a chance that the IDF is already maybe with um, with the forces inside Gaza or parts of Gaza. And today, dialed, and for sure, there are many bombings from from the air um, with the air force. And today, we're going to speak about the ethical code of the IDF of the Israeli army. And my first question for you is: Can you share a little bit about what is the ethical code of the IDF? Is it happening also in any army in the world? And do you see anything unique about this Israeli code? Um, there are ethical codes, uh, um, I believe, in the U.S. It's one for officers and one for enlisted uh, personnel. Uh, in Israel, it's uh, not surprisingly uh, one across the board. Um, um, it uh, you know there are there are universal aspects to this, at least to those armies that are committed to fighting ethically or morally. 
Um, and uh, there are local emphases and uh, constellations, sets of values, uh, some of which are especially uh, Israeli. Uh, the purpose of the code is really uh, for the army as an organization and for the people who are committed to or belong to this organization to formulate what are the values that guide them or to which they aspire in the conduct of whatever they're doing in that organization, which for the army is to prepare for fighting and to actually fight. And how much the ethical code of the IDF is known to the soldiers, to officers? It's quite well known. It appears on billboards everywhere in the army camps, but also each soldier is given a foldable version, which you can put in your pocket. And it's part of every phase of the training uh, uh, sometimes uh, a group of soldiers or a cohort in a course will go off for a week uh, with the uh, ed- called the education corps of the army, and they'll talk about various things, and they will have a session or two about the code, including uh, uh, scenarios, you know, what if this happens, how would you apply the code to this, trying to figure out what the values are. Uh, realizing that values can conflict and then you need to try to resolve or prioritize among them. So it, it's pretty well known. Thank you. And um, my, and, and now when we when Israel go to a battle or to a war, now it's not even, um, right, it's a real war. So how much it's important for the officers who are thinking about the war with Gaza um, or maybe also with Hezbollah um, in Lebanon, how much it's important for them, how much it's available for them as they are planning the war? Well, there's enormous variation in this. The code is the values to which you aspire. So on the individual level, we know that we don't, none of us actually ever fully meets our aspirations. Now, maybe saints do, but they are rare. So right. there's there, there's liable to be a gap for each individual between the values to which we are committed and the extent to which we actually live up to them. Um, but we still care about these values, and despite temptations and shortcomings, we sometimes do live up to our values. That's on the individual level. On the collective level, it works a bit differently, though it's similar. That is, no one can claim that any army lives up fully to its code of ethics and has no failures. But this is a standard you can hold up, and it's also something that you can hold up to each other. I mean, one person can say to the other, hey, these are not our values, look at the code. Now, I don't think they'll actually be pulling out the text in real time and looking at it, but to the extent that it's, it is internalized, or even to the extent that it formulates what the people sense, the moral sense that the people have before it was formulated. So the values are there, and people, each in their individual way, and it, in their to the extent that they do this, will refer to the code or to the values they were, they say, no. there'll be a situation where something problematic is about to be done and someone will say, hey, are you crazy? We don't do things that way. Mm-hmm. And then they might argue about it. So this can happen in real time and of course it could happen in planning. Uh, I know, I've heard pe- you know, people say we're about to go into Gaza. What if we 
run into scenario X and what do we do? So people, there's been days waiting and thinking. So people are are discussing this, worrying about it, thinking about it. So let's go deep into the the, the code of ethics itself. You you were t you you were part of the um, um, you were brainstorming around parts of this um, code of ethics, and also you were teaching that for years for officers in the military. Can you share with us what are the main points that we have in this code of ethics? Well, there's a whole set of values, and uh, I won't go through all of them. You know, there's a value of which is very important in the Israeli army. I think it's important in other armies, which we call an Ibu Reut, which means uh, like solidarity or some some camaraderie or comradeship. <laughs> So that means really, you know, being committed to your brothers in, or sisters in arms, and and really, uh, um, and this is a very deep value with with a lot of uh, weight. Um, in the present context, I think the two main uh, sections are the one about human life and the one which it has is has its caption a unique Israeli term, purity of arms, which you were very involved in. I was specifically involved in formulating, together with other colleagues who worked on the text as a whole, I was involved in formulating the particular section about purity of arms. And the difference between these two is that human life mainly talks about the lives of our soldiers. Mm. And uh, I, I've seen a, a statement uh, uh, attributed to Napoleon who bragged I can afford to lose 30,000 soldiers a month. Well, well, he's talking about, you know, the large army, which right. the French Revolution made available yeah. of conscripts. But it's really terrible. I mean, he can afford it. But can these 30,000 men afford to die every month? Of course not. So you you don't want people leading the army. And you as an individual, you don't want to go into combat um, led by an officer uh, with that kind of callous attitude to to your life and the life of your comrades, so human life is about preserving our own lives and that of our comrades. But that same basic value, um, in Jewish terms, we would say the value of each human being as created in the divine image. I, um, <laughs> each human life has this great value, and then when you are engaged in fighting and that involves shedding blood and killing humans, then the purity of arms clause has to do with what's called in the, uh, the Geneva Convention distinction and that is the basic uh, demand to distinguish between those who are legitimate targets of military action that namely combatants or those involved in terrorism or on the one hand and non-combatants and the most important principle there is non-combatant immunity. So, so I would love if you can, when you look at what's happening now with Gaza and you think about um, striking from the air, let's, let's start with what we have now. What are the questions that the Air Force need to ask itself, himself or itself when they plan this bombing? Because 
we know that Gaza is a place where even if you have offices of the Hamas, you also have innocent. Um, how to how we elaborate these questions because their results are very hard for anyone who watch them. That's a very good question, but I'll permit myself to uh, take a step back with uh, from answering that by saying, first of all, that uh, if we are committed to uh, purity of arms or non-combatant immunity or uh, using bellow and fighting justly, uh, the Hamas is not. So that should be a starting point. Now, President Biden today visiting Israel emphasized many times that the Hamas are terrorists. So really, is like President Bush before him in other contexts, is to emphasize that those who would, uh, intentionally attack civilians and combatants um, are not respecting the morality of warfare at all. And they are acting in an abhorrent manner, which we call terrorism. And I might even add to that, because there is something even worse than terrorism. And in terms of the degrees of evil of uh, international law and the ethics of warfare, that is genocide. Now, the definition of genocide is not only if you exterminate an entire people. It's, I mean, you start somewhere. So you kill one person, 10, 100, 1,000. One, what point does it start being classified as, on top of being terrorism, also being genocidal? Yeah. And uh, it's debatable, and there are debates whether what Hamas did less uh, recently on October 7th is, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding crazy, but... Now, whether it's just terrorism or even has slid into genocide. Mm. But be that as it may, now we are fighting Hamas, and we don't want to be terrorists like them, so we don't want to target the innocent or non-combatants. And that's where your question came in. Mm-hmm. So uh, famously, in uh, uh, warfare, um, we have the... Uh, the problem, uh, which runs like this. It's permissible and maybe even mandatory if you're fighting to attack and try to harm and kill the enemy combatants in the context of fighting against either a guerrilla organization or terrorists. And the difference is that the guerrilla only attacks the army and the terrorists attack civilians. But what they have in common in many contexts is that they hide and are interspersed among a non-combatant population. And then the challenge is, you know, how do you attack those that you are supposed to be attacking? And what do you do when you realize that it's really unavoidable that you'll also harm uh, non-combatants. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we look at the IVF Code of Ethics on this section regarding the period of the arms, it reads like this. Uh, uh, the IDF servicemen and women will use their weapons and force only for the purpose of their mission, will not use their weapons and force to harm human beings who are not combatants and will do all in their power to avoid causing harm to them. 
Um, so the, uh, so first of all, the principle is that you don't aim to attack non-combatants. And even though you, people in Israel might be tempted to say, well, they didn't make that distinction. They came and slaughtered men, women, and children and beheaded people that raped and, and took abducted and children. So why should we care? Right. Well, even more, some people will say we want to revenge. This is the only way to make them to understand, right? Exactly. Well, there's a there's a drive to to deter them somehow by yeah by being as cruel as them or doing even worse to them. And there's also a motivation of revenge. And if we try to avoid going down that path, then we this is what the code says. Whatever they do, we have to act in a very determined and forceful way to try to eliminate them, reduce their power, deter them, and so on. But we still don't make the non-combatants, I mean, our, our targets. So we're not out to kill children in Gaza. But then you face the tragic problem. Uh, okay, you're aiming to target and eliminate the Hamas personnel. Right. And then they have they are interspersed among families who are just there. Um and the main point here is that as I uh, read uh, from the text a moment ago that you're supposed to do all in your power to avoid causing harm. Um, Michael Walzer, in his classical uh, book, which is really the foundation for all of this discussion, published in 1977 in the wake of the Vietnam War and the protests against it, is called Just and Unjust Wars by Michael Walzer. Uh, in discussing this issue, he mentions the classical case of French pilots in World War II who were flying British planes, but they were French pilots, officers, and they, part of their missions were to bomb Nazi installations in France. Mm. And it was deemed important to destroy those installations, but there were French people living in the towns or in the countryside where those things were. Yeah. And especially given the uh, lack of precision of aerial bombardment in World War II, it was obvious that if you were lucky enough to hit the target, you would also be hitting the civilians. And what the French pilots decided to do, as Walter recounts it in this dilemma, is if I'm looking again at this text, do all in your power to avoid harming them. Mm -hmm. So they decided to fly lower. Mm -hmm. So rather than doing the uh, the bombardment from ten thousand feet, they did it from fifth from five thousand feet. Yeah. So that increases the the precision mm -hmm. greatly, but of course it also exposes them to a greater danger of anti aircraft fire. Right. And the willingness to incur some additional risk is a, a good sign. I don't know if it's exclusively the sign, but it shows that you really are trying to reduce harm to them. When we think about, you know, today, I I, I was speaking with one of the Air Force pilots um, two, two nights ago. 
you know, you are with your F-15, you got a target from the intelligence, you have 40 numbers, you need to put these 40 numbers, the code, and you throw the bone. Um, the IDF updated this neighborhood that they're going to bomb it. But then you throw the bomb. So it's like, when is the, when is the time that maybe we are not allowed to use the Air Force? I'm not sure what you're asking. My asking is like that. When, the Air, when, when an F-15 Air Force pilot coming to bomb a building in Gaza, he cannot see if there are citizens or not, if there are unarmed, if there are citizen children, people who are not Hamas in this building. He got a code of numbers and the intelligent hopefully did everything they can to try to make sure that the people who are there are from the Hamas. But at the end of the day, he throw a bomb, and these are not small bombs. We speak about huge bombs with damage. Well, when the code of ethics say, Noam, we cannot use the Air Force in Gaza because who knows who is there? Well, there are two parts to this. Uh, one is what, what you describe emphasizes rightly that the ethics is not individualistic here. Mm -hmm. The actions are those of individuals, but it's an organization. And you really have to be able to trust other people in the organization. You In, in, this, in the scenario you described, the pilot is relying on the intelligence officers, and there has to be a joint understanding that everyone is committed to reducing uh, harm to non-combatants as far as possible. Yeah. And... Of course, if the pilot doesn't have that trust, either in the intelligence officers or in the general staff who gave the guidance to the intelligence officers, there's something called a target bank, which is built up over time. And so when you gave, someone gave the guidelines to whoever was uh, 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 building the target bank, and you can say, well, these are the parameters so you, it's really a, a complex system of cooperation among many agents, and they need to be trust across the board in the moral fiber of the individuals committed to the organizational or national uh, values here. But I should emphasize that after all is said and done, and you do all that in your power, to reduce the risk to non-combatants, that's not going to be zero. And the just war theory from the Catholic scholastics of the Middle Ages uh, through early modern times and Walter's reformulation as adopted by, let's say, all civilized nations, recognizes that it, it it's not going to be zero. So there's a very... The technical term sounds very coarse. It's called collateral damage. That really means killing people who you would much rather not kill, and you make a serious effort to not harm them. But in the end, it is acceptable to hit the requisite targets, even though either certainly or with high probability, um, non-combatants will be killed, right. and that is 
uh, if you really are making a genuine effort to reduce that, then it's still subject to the question of proportionality. And since this word is bandied about a lot, I think it's worth explaining. Yes. Proportionality doesn't mean, you know, let's see how many people they killed on our side so we can kill people on their side because we're not out for revenge. Mm-hmm. So it's not an eye for an eye. Right. The proportionality is not between numbers of people on each side. It's between the, how vital is this military mission, how important is, it is to take out, you know, in classical warfare, a particular bridge or to hit an enemy unit or in this context to take out a Hamas leader or a site from which they shoot rockets at our communities. And, you know, then there's the importance of the target and then the the size of the risk and the numbers of people who might be hurt. And classically, you talk about a pilot taking out a bridge, which might be vital. You know, it's very important for the battle, for the war effort to destroy this bridge so the enemy can't use it. And then is it one person standing near the bridge or one family house or 50 or a thousand civilians, you know, the bridge, I don't know, will cause a flood and drown a thousand people downstream. And this makes a difference. And there's no formula for this. But if you really care about it, you'll be looking at both sides of this balance. I want to try, Noam, to go for a second to try to um, to try to ask the question from some Israelis. Okay, so they, they will say, some Israelis will say, what the Hamas did, they will say a few things. I, I, I will try to, to elaborate that. First of all, they will say, Yakira Noam, this is all beautiful, but we are in the Middle East. In the Middle East, it doesn't work as in like Michael Walzer in Princeton. There are people who will who attacked us in the most inhuman ways. The stories are horrible as we know Noam and you know it very well we if we will kill Hamas people will try to use the ethics codes of the IDF they will just continue to attack us there is a need now not for eye for an eye but we need a full body for an eye because this is the Middle East and they will say you know what Noam look at what the American did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki they needed to kill so many citizens, unarmed citizens, but they make such a point that the Japanese surrounded or dressed them like bombing cities of the Germans to end this the Second World War. What we will explain to them, Ron? Um, well, the historical examples are challenging. Certainly the bombing of Hiroshima uh brought about the uh, unconditional surrender of Japan, which uh, was not achievable otherwise. Um, It's a question whether that goal was a reasonable or justified goal because maybe a conditional surrender could have been achieved without this and would have been fine. Unconditional surrender was a... the war aim in Europe mm-hmm. against the Nazis. It's not self-evident that it was reasonable or important to have the same uh, goal vis-a-vis Japan. 
And in in Europe, it's not at all clear that the bombing of cities uh, in, in Dresden or other places actually contributed to the hastening the surrender. It was actually in the end necessary to reach Berlin. Now there was a race from east and west, and that's what brought about the end of the war in May 1945. Um, and now focusing on the Middle East context that you mentioned. Yeah. The basic problem is we have these, the war, uh, you know, the war ethic or the principles or the rules of warfare, the Geneva Convention, the the distinction between combatants and non-combatants that I was discussing before. And here you have an enemy who doesn't respect that at all. Right. And who were uh, explicitly committed to, you know, to attacking non-combatants. Even before this uh, terrible event of October 7th, they were shooting missiles all the time at pounds and kindergartens. I mean, so we have this whole practice of taking people into shelters and having the protective Iron Dome. Uh, yeah, right. But, yeah, but what they're doing is trying to shoot not at army installations, but at, at non-combatants all the time. Right. So, it, so then the question is, you have certain rules, and then you have people who are not playing by the rules at all. So what maybe you yourself should break the rules once drastically to make them get back into the game and play by the rules. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it will just go on and on. Well, um, this is a sign of utilitarian justification. Where in terms of moral philosophy, you have the conflict between the principles of rights, which in the philosopher Robert Nozick's terms, act as side constraints. I mean, they set the limits of what you're allowed to do. So if there's some, if there's a right at stake, then even if it's useful and advantageous to violate it, it still should not be violated. So that's the discourse of rights, which is at the foundation of the kind of war ethics I've been articulating. And then there's the utilitarian calculation, which says, you know, many people are going to keep on getting killed unless you go and murder a a certain number of people in Gaza. And yes, it is murder. And you can say we're dirtying our hands. And this is the problem of dirty hands that Walter wrote about, taking the phrase from Sartre's play with that name. And here you have the yes, we have to dirty our hands because that's the only way we can bring an end to this. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is here that if the justification is utilitarian, that is, it's in the terms of what will the result be, then you have to be relatively sure that that indeed will be the result. We will break the rules. We will kill lots of people in Gaza to teach them once and for all. Well, will that actually work? Now, if you have pretty good assurance that it will work, I can see that that's a good argument. I mean, it, it's very troubling, and you have to be willing to mortgage your soul for that. But it, I can see the argument that, yes, you should be willing to do even that in order, in the long run, to save both us and the Palestinians from this endless bloodbath. Yeah. But how sure can we be of that result? And 
I think that the way I just put that question is a vast understatement. Sadly, we can be pretty sure that the result will be further cycles of revenge. It's not that the people on the other side will be convinced and say, wow, this is really scary. We better avoid doing that to the Israelis. They will more likely say, wow, the Israelis have brought us even more misery and suffering and killed our children. And the rage that that will produce will probably replenish the ranks of the militants and of the terrorists and lead to further and further rounds of revenge. And we actually see this in societies where revenge is the norm. We even see this in certain sections of Israeli society. Not that if you act very savagely and cruelly, you bring an end to the site. As the other side, it's, it's a one-upmanship issue. I mean, the other side then says, oh, I have to do even greater harm, and then you're, you say, you're even angrier and more desperate. You say, well, well let's worse things to them. It's a minus zero-sum game that you need to escalate all the time. Exactly. So, now, again, I want to be very honest. If we could be fairly sure that doing this, doing terrible things once would bring an end to this, would really deter them, then it would be a terrible dilemma, but I can see the argument for that. But very unfortunately, I think it's more likely that the opposite would happen. I understand. So I want to, to do the next step. Um, Israel announced that, at least in the north part of the Gaza area, the Gaza Strip, um, they they advise the citizen, everyone there, to leave the area um, because the Israeli, because of the bombs, and maybe also also the military will go inside. Um, what the ethical code of the IDF? Um, what the questions or what the things that we the list what we need or Israeli army need to think when they tell to a million people or three quarter million people leave your houses, go to the South Park or to the area next to Egypt? Well, actually, this all comes under the heading of the same text we were reading. I read to you before. You, know, you have to do all in your power to avoid arming the non-combatants. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a, um, there's a really, I should say that if you have this situation of of uh, civilians and and the terrorists interspersed, then what does it actually mean to do all in your power? I mean, you can say let's use precision munitions, maybe uh, fly a bit lower so the even if the pilot is risking something. Or just use the helicopters and not the airplane. Yes, or send in ground units. I mean, to a certain limit. You don't want to make it a suicide mission because that would fail, and it's not fair to the soldiers themselves. Then there are things that very, I should say, admirably, the IDF has been doing in this kind of confrontations in Gaza for years. Uh, telephone messages. There's this automated system that calls up 
either everybody or the particular building or area which is about to be attacked, and the people get a message on the phone in Arabic saying, you are in a combat zone, you're about to attack, we give you, you know, five minutes or as quickly as you can get out. Now, that is a way of really trying to reduce arms. Leaflets are dropped from the sky. In other contexts, there would be loudspeakers. So you try to get the civilians to leave. Now, that's on a very local basis. And now there's this more major effort to say, let them all move out. That is really, at, at heart, an effort to, uh, to reduce, drastically reduce civilian casualties. And this classically has to do historically with the ethics of the siege. When uh, Maimonides uh, says, in laying siege to a town, you have to surround it from three sides, not from four sides, which sounds like an oxymoron, but because you have to let the civilians leave. And the, the basic idea is you have the army in there, and it's legitimate to fight them if we're assuming that it's a just war or a war of self-defense. And then you don't want to be fighting the civilians. So in the uh, international uh, war uh, law, it actually is acceptable and maybe even requisite to ask, demand, announce, try to bring the whole population in the city to leave temporarily to enable you to fight the army or the, in our case, the terrorists who were there while reducing harms to the civilians. Mm -hmm. But then the problem is, how does you avoid such mass movement of people away from their homes, how do you avert that in itself becoming a humanitarian catastrophe? Mm. So the, part of that is a question of the duration. I mean, if they're supposed to leave for a year, that's really unacceptable, I think. If it's a few days, maybe it's unavoidable. It's the lesser evil. And where are they going to be? And are they going to a place where they'll have at least food and water, and maybe if it becomes cold, you know, some kind of shelter. And uh, you need to worry about that some way or other. In the very least, you're not allowed to prevent them from getting food and shelter and water. Mm -hmm. Because then you would be subjecting them all to a siege reality in their new location or in their temporary location. So on the one hand, this demand that they, a million people move south, shocking and horrible as it may seem, may actually be the humane way to behave in order to avoid what has happened all too many times in history when the attacking army just indiscriminately harms everybody and they can always claim, you know, we're only harmed with trying to hit the combatants, but unfortunately there's this collateral damage and there's nothing we can do about it. You can even say that the uh, terrorists are using the civilians as human shields, and if you allow people to get away with that, then the most evil people will always win, and that's unacceptable. So the alternative of saying, let's get the civilians out of there, 
just to rescue them and spare their lives, albeit through suffering and fear and becoming refugees for a while, but you're still really saving them. Now, that may be the lesser evil and maybe even the right way to go, but that's all conditional on avoiding a humanitarian catastrophe once they're moved out and also on it being temporary. This cannot be mass deportation because forced deportation of a whole population is defined as genocide. Mm -hmm. And that's not something we should be pursuing at all. I don't think that's the goal. Oh, but I'm saying as long as it's uh, done in ways which ensure uh, the, uh, at least the minimal existence, existence of these people while they are away, and as long as it's temporary, allowing them to move back and rebuild their life when one hopes the terrorists and their power have been removed or drastically reduced, then then it's, uh, I think, an acceptable way to go. I wonder, Noam, and I'm not sure it's even a question, but I just wonder, and if I think it's important to say that, that I, I also wonder how much Palestinian, like the Palestinians, they can trust the IDF, or like Israel, when we say leave your houses for a while, since they have the trauma of the 48, of the Nakba, and then of 67, that many of them left and they are they were never allowed to come back to their houses. And I'm sure it's something that in their cultural DNA is there with pain. Uh, I agree. And first of all, it would be tragic if, let's suppose at this time around, uh, it is a genuine offer of a temporary moving out and then you can come back and they don't heed it because of the echoes of the past, as you mentioned. So that would be tragic if they remained and then were killed because of that. Um, but um, strangely, the Hamas seems to be trying to block their escape. Why? And it's a, the Hamas is trying to put roadblocks on the on the roads leading south. Uh, but it makes sense, right? people. Yes, and now... What they say is something like what you said, you know, we have to stay in our homes, the Tumud in Arabic, and not leave. But you can't say they want to retain their human shields. But another way is to say they're trying to prevent the kind of repeat of the uh, becoming refugees from the past. Um, there's something even more problematic in what you indicated. I do hear voices here in Israel of Mercifully, they seem to be a minority, even among the far-right coalition we have now. But they are there, who are saying, yes, we want them to leave, all of them. Well, Gaza should become empty. Some of them even say, let's build our, rebuild our settlements there. But others say, you know, let it just become an empty area. Yeah. And then you say, but where will they move? They, yeah. Some people say, that's not my problem. Some people hope they'll just somehow disappear or Egypt will agree to accept them, which it won't. Uh, I think reasonably won't. And this whole idea of uprooting an entire population is indeed defined as genocide. So when you say that 
Palestinians may be afraid of that. I think fueling this fear, maybe not only the memories you mentioned, but the, the, the voices from the Israeli side who are saying, well, it begins as a temporary evacuation, but we hope that it will become permanent. And we hope that it won't be just to the southern half of Gaza, but chase the wall into Egypt. So you have the Egyptian president saying, oh no, that's not going to happen. Why don't you move them into the Negev? He said, Which is the south of Israel. Yeah. The south of Israel. So, yes. So from all sides, there are grounds for that fear, and I have no cure for that. And um, I can only say that relatively speaking i think they have more reason to trust us than we have to trust them given the way hamas has behaved recently yeah and i am enough of size uh, the relatively i mean right. there are good reasons for distrust uh, to go around on all sides no i want to two more questions please and uh, and, and I, I just want to say to our listeners that like I want to thank you for coming like a few days after the attack and like, uh, you know, like to, to really try to help us to elaborate and to understand the anti-code of the idea. So my next question is, we have now an army who lost, I mean, if we take out the civilians that the Hamas murdered and kidnapped, we have also hundreds of soldiers who were killed. And you know, it's end of the day, army's army. You like, you, you killed my people, Part of the, I'm sure, and 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 I also hear that, like yeah. we want now, kind of revenge, not in the, not in a brutal way, but like you know, military is military. It's very hard to soldiers not to feel that when half of their unit or many of their unit were killed. I can imagine the Golani unit. I can imagine, you know, how the army, how the officers help their soldiers not to walk into Gaza with this attitude? Well, I think that uh, I don't know what's happening all over. You know, you hear scattered voices, so some interviews, and I hear, I speak to, you know, individuals I know, or I hear them, at my age, it's people talking to their children or sometimes to their grandchildren. Yeah. And my granddaughter is in the Army. She's not in a combat unit, but her boyfriend is... Uh, down on the southern uh, New Gaza in uh, oh, probably would be among those moving in. So you talk to people and there is this rage and want to even revenge the blood of our uh, fallen comrades. But mostly and properly that's focused on the Hamas people. Mm -hmm. They're the bad guys. And let's go get them. And we're angry at them for killing our comrades. And we are quite rightly much even angrier at them for killing non-combatants, which is something which is even more enraging. So let the, the sense that I get from the units preparing to move in is mostly, yes, there is that emotion you mentioned, and it's mostly channeled where it should be channeled. Let's go get those bad guys, the evil peoples, some of them hiding in bunkers, you know, and, and organizing this very clever but really very cruel and, and, and inhumane attack. 
and we let's go root them out. And we're even willing to risk our lives and fight and go and find them wherever they are. And however long it takes, and we'll just go and get them. And that's the proper attitude. And one hopes that they're able to do that. Now, of course, even more enraging in this context is the captives and the abductees who are held by Hamas. And also that in countervening all conventions, even when you capture soldiers, you're required to report the names and the people, the identities of the people you have and enable access by the International Red Cross. And Hamas is not enabling that. And certainly, if you abduct civilians, where there's not even any law about that, because you assume that people will be captured in war and become prisoners of war. But just abducting civilians and children and, and an 85-year-old woman, I mean, that's just barbaric. So there's this very strong feelings of we can't let them get away with that. So anybody who was involved in organizing that or you know, hiding them or facilitating all those evil things should rightly be pursued and attacked. But I think that it's only a minority of the soldiers whom this spills over into, you know, let's kill their children and their, all of them. I'm afraid some people are going to feel that as well. But I don't sense that that's the main emotion or, or set of mind, thank God. Nam, I again thank you so much. It's hard. It's such hard time, and uh, thank you for taking the time to to join us to try to touch this complicated subject um, in time of war. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I mean, let have let us pray for peace, and thank you for uh, taking interest in these very important and uh, sensitive issues. Thank you.